this morning. I want to share, uh, if I can, something reflecting back on this year, um, because I was very moved this morning and didn't really know why. In particular, sometimes we don't know exactly, have the right words or precise thing, and it's just the Spirit filling us. Um, there's a time for pondering things in your heart like Mary did, and then there's a time for proclaiming them to the glory of God. And so I just want to give a, a small story, a testimony uh, personally that uh, is probably representative of some things that any one of you, each of you, could probably share this morning. Um, in February of this year, my mother-in-law, Lynn Bruce, died. And so it's been, in some ways, a very difficult year, an unusual year. Uh, but what I want to share is about God's faithfulness. God knows everything. He knows everything that's going to happen and when, and he knows what we will need. So almost exactly nine months before that, Caitlin came to me one day with a pregnancy test strip and said, Looks like we're going to have another baby. Okay. Your parents' experiences with that are probably different, uh, but in our experience, our first three, we, we saw it coming, and we felt like a gap. We got to a point where it felt like somebody was missing. Like, yeah, it's time. It's, there's somebody missing. Someone else needs to be here. And this wasn't like that. This was very... Okay, I mean, we didn't dislike the idea, but we didn't see it coming, and we just kind of moved on. Two, three days, I may not get it exactly right, after uh, Sister Lynn died, uh, our daughter Fairlight was born. We came home from Dallas, and she was born. And uh, I don't know how Caitlin would have made it without her. But that's really a foolish thing to say because God knew what she would need and he provided it. Nine months ahead, I mean, ahead of time. Uh, that has just, this all year has been the clearest, most personal, you know, one of those things that maybe you don't see as clearly as I do, but that the Lord, the Lord will tell you. Sometimes the Lord makes very clear in your own heart, I did this, I did this, and I did it for this reason, and I did it for you. And she's a sinner like the rest of us, but we can hardly tell yet. That's how, that's how wonderful she's been. Truly, that is what a blessing she has been. God is faithful. There is a, um, a really remarkable passage in Matthew chapter 28, a remarkable statement. And it's, uh, when I read it, you're going to know it. It's precious to each of us. Uh, but it's partly remarkable for its placement and when it occurs in the story. In chapter 27, verse 50, he says, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Now, one side note, he cried aloud. Here it just says he cried aloud with a loud voice. And so if you're just reading Matthew and you read he, he cried aloud with a loud voice, you may just think it was a cry of anguish or agony or just some kind of animal, you know, loud animal cry. 
But over in John, you'll find that it says, he said, it is finished, and gave up the ghost. So he said the words, it is finished, but he didn't say them quietly like, thank goodness that's over. He cried with a loud voice, a loud triumphant voice, it is finished, and then he gave up the ghost. This is one of the three, maybe the most important moment in the history of this whole world that God has made. The Son of God has just proclaimed his triumph and died right now. And the next words are, and behold, behold. Now that word shows up a lot in scripture, but think about some of the times that that is said. John says, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed on us, that we should be called the sons of God. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. These are some heady beholds. We can all rejoice in those. But here, at this moment, the thing that the Spirit, through Matthew, chooses to say next is, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. A lot of things Matthew could have said. He does say a lot of things, and he you have to say them in some order and choose one. I don't know that it means one's more important than the other, and yet something has to come first. And the first thing recorded after Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dies is that this veil over here in the temple is written twain from top to bottom. What's the big deal? Now, y'all, y'all know. Y'all know what the big deal is. I'm not surprising most of you with this, but I want you to see that this is a big deal. To God, this is very, very important. The Son of God dies, and He immediately calls our attention. Behold, the veil has rent in twain from top to bottom. Now, let's go to Exodus chapter 32 and read about the veil. So it was an object that was commanded by God to be uh, crafted for the tabernacle. Did I put my marker in the right spot? I may not have. Well, y'all forgive me. Give me just a minute. I think it's actually 26. 26. Chapter 26. Uh, and just start, let's start in verse 30. And thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof, which was showed thee in the mount. And thou shalt make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen of cunning work. With cherubims shall it be made. And thou shalt hang it upon four pillars of shittim wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold upon the four sockets of silver. And thou shalt hang up the veil under the tatches that thou mayest bring in thither within the veil the ark of the testimony. And the veil shall divide you, divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy. Here shall we read about this veil. Now, the tabernacle is a big rectangular courtyard 
And at one end of that big rectangular courtyard is a rectangular tent. And inside that tent, there are two divisions. One is the holy place, and the other is the most holy place. And the holy place is full of sacred and precious things. The holy place is a very sacred place. Uh, But priests are in and out of the holy place every day, offering sacrifices, doing what they're called to do. But in this most holy place, for nearly 1,500 years, now how old is America? 1770, what, 300, not, not even 300 years. Just some context, right? Is my math right? 1776, isn't it? <laughs> That's how old our whole country is. Let's say not, not 300 years. 1,500 years with some interruptions, the captivity. It's been interruptions. But for 1,500 years, one man, once a year, has gone in this place. That's it. One man, only one man, and only one very particular man. And as we'll go Hebrews and find, not without blood, not without blood, one man, once a year, no other man, And not that man any other time of year, only once a year. That's how sacred this place is. What happens if someone else goes in there, or if that man goes in there any other time of year, is they die. They die. Why? Because God is in that room. God is in that room. Now, I don't, I don't know exactly what that cloud looked like, the Shekinah cloud of glory, you know, but there was a, a physical presence, a physical manifestation of God that dwelt in that place. And what we find is that the purpose of this veil was to divide. The purpose of the veil was to separate the people and the other priests, and even that priest, 364 days of the year, to separate them from that most holy place. God is, I, I wish I could, I wish I could grasp a holy God as I wish I could. If you just try to meditate on what the scripture says about his holiness and ask the spirit to help you, um, when I, try to do that even in preparation for this message, I immediately begin to find myself appreciating the holiness of God. We, we cannot grasp and understand how absolutely pure and perfect and right and good and holy God is. He cannot look upon sin. He cannot touch. He, he will not have anything to do with anything that is not perfectly right and pure and holy. And even if we only had, each of us, the one sin, then you could still say we have no conception of how sinful we are. We have no proper understanding of how not holy we are. And the Old Testament, in particular, emphasizes this again and again and again. God is holy. He is separate. He is Sacred. And this is epitomized here in this place, again, where once a year, not without blood, the one man has gone in and has seen the presence of God. But if anyone else does that, you know, here's what happens 
if you go in without permission, or if you go in on that day and you're not the right person, you go in and you die. This is the place where you go in to see God and die. We, we know uh, examples, we know uh, examples in the Old Testament where God emphasizes his holiness. If we back up just in Exodus 19 and look at his uh, coming on Mount Sinai, which this is glorious. Now, y'all, the, the, the nation of Israel as a nation, you'll find David in the Psalms again and again reflect back on this time with, with worship and wonder. Because God came and visited them. God came down and he spoke to them. And he revealed himself. And so it's glorious, but it is also awful. It is, a, it is terrible. It is holy. God didn't say, y'all come on up and have a big party. In chapter 19, um, in verse 10, he says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that ye go not up into the mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. There shall not an hand touch it. But he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. And Moses went down from the mount unto the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said unto the people, Be ready against the third day, come not at your wives. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled and Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the nether part of the mount and Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace and the whole mount quaked greatly and later the people basically say Moses, you go. We don't even want to be here. We don't even want to look. This is terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. And God says, don't even touch the mountain. Don't even touch the mountain. Uh, this scene, when I picture this scene, I always picture helicopters circling around, you know, because this, this is a big deal. This scene is so momentous that if it were to happen on our earth with our modern communication and broadcasting, the whole world would be watching. This would be on all the television screens. This The mountain is quaking and shaking, and God has come down on it with not a little fire, a fire. The whole mountain is burning and quaking and lightning. God is, God is holy, and he says, you don't come up here. You don't touch this. I'm here. We know what happens to people who touch the ark, the ark, which is a sign of the presence of God. But people having to touch the ark or look in the ark. Uzzah touched the ark to steady it. Uzzah died. Some men of Beth Shemesh, when the ark came back from the, the Philistines, um, and it, it kind of it parked in a few places before it found its home. Um, and for a while it parked in a place. And the Bible just says that they looked in it. Because they looked in it, he smote, what it said, 40-something thousand of them. They looked in the ark. Don't do that. God is holy, and because we are uh, less than holy, we 
can't approach unto God without protection. So this veil in the Old Testament, this veil in that tabernacle, it really served two purposes. The first is that it was a division. Not everybody got to see it, but let's say it this way. When you saw that veil, you were reminded that God is holy and I'm not. He's on the other side and I'm on this side. It separates, it divides. But the veil was also, in a sense, protection. The veil was also, in a sense, protecting them from the holy presence of God that they could not stand before. He told Moses, you cannot see my face and live. So here's this veil dividing and protecting. The veil kind of does what uh, we'll see in Hebrews. The veil kind of does what it says all those sacrifices did year after year after year. It says they reminded the people about sin. In those was a reminder of sin. That doesn't sound good to beat you over the head. Yep, sin, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. Yes, the sacrifices, the fact that they were repeated again and again were intended and designed to remind us of our sin and of God's holiness. So let's turn to Hebrews 10. Uh, I guess all the whole Bible. There are certain places that are more like this than others where it's very difficult to figure out where to start reading. You have to back up a chapter or two or three and then you just find yourself at the start of the book. It's very, very difficult. Here's where we're going to start. In verse 12, and then Lord willing, we may back up into chapter 10 some more. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Let me take a little rabbit trail. Hebrews is just full of the finished work of Christ. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down. That happened at a point in time on this earth in linear that happened and at that point he had by himself purged our sins. Whoever the all hour is, their sins are purged. Period. And they were purged then. Then. Right then. Their sins were purged. That's what Hebrews says. Here it says By one offering, then he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. That is when it happened. This is why Paul says, I will glory in the cross. The cross is where my glory is because the cross is where it happened. The cross is where he said, it is finished. Right now, he said, it is finished. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. Now, there's sermons within sermons on this verse. We've been in Romans 8. I've just had a blast going through Romans 8 lately at Medlin Chapel. And what I don't think I'd ever seen before is the saturation of the Holy Spirit. That chapter is about the Holy Spirit. Ten times in the first 11 verses, it's the Spirit. And then the Spirit maketh intercession. The Holy Spirit is a, a witness your heart, when he uh, when he uh, brings life to you and you recognize your father and say, Abba, Father, your heart says, I think I'm a child of God. But how could you ever 
even so preposterous as to say that. But what Romans says is, our heart says we're a child of God, and the Holy Spirit witnesses and says, yes, indeed you are. The Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit is uh, an incalculably precious earnest of our inheritance. The Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, where sins and iniquities are remitted, there's no more offering for sin. No more is needed. The sins and iniquities are remitted. They're gone. Having therefore... Sins and iniquities being remitted, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest. Now, I cannot hear these words the way these Hebrews, written to the Hebrews, the way these Jewish Christians heard these words. They have 1,500 years of history where you do not go in that place or you die. This is not a place where you just go. And now he says... Having, therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest. How? By the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus. Now, that was what was being pictured all along. Because over here in Hebrews 9, he says, He enters in not without blood. That man... Here I am. I'm ready to go. Everything's perfect. I'm exactly like God has told me to be. Yep, I'm the high priest. Check. Yep, it's the day of atonement. Check. I've got all the garments right. It's time. We're ready to go. And he walks in without blood and he dies. That's how that works. Not without blood. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. We walk into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. But here's where it gets really, really sweet to me. Because Now you picture that. You picture yourself. And you've got everything right. And I even have the blood of Jesus. And and that's your ticket in. It is. But I'd still be a little scared. Here I am. About to walk into the holiest of holies. This is where people go see God and die. Am I sure this is really going to work? Boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. Now, wait a minute. I thought the veil was rent. I thought the whole point of the veil being rent in twain was that now the way is open. That's what it means, right? Yes, it is. It is. The veil is rent in twain, and man, the way is open. But I want you to imagine being the priest who's on priest duty the next morning, you know, after Christ has died, and he walks into the holy place to do what they do there every day, and the way is open. Do you think he went, oh boy, and kicked his heels and ran in? I think he probably turned around and ran out as fast as he could. Get me out of here. The way is open. I'm exposed before the holy God. Where's the curtain? Where's it gone? Where's my protection? This is a new and living way, which he has consecrated. And that word is not only set apart, but it's also a renew. He has renewed the curtain. He ripped the old one, but he's replaced it with a different one, a better one. 
a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. It is a new and living way because he is alive. We heard about that this morning, didn't we? He's alive. His flesh is not just lying in the ground rotting, and thanks to his flesh, we now have a way in. He's there. He's at the entrance to the most holy place. And our way in always, every single time, every time, the first time and every time after that, is still through the veil, but it's a new and living way. It is the very body, the very flesh, the very person, flesh and bone person of the Son of God. He is the way into the most holy place. Now, this is what the curtain was pointing to all the time. This wasn't just a utilitarian, you know, God said, I'm here and they're going to be out there and I better rig up something to separate me from them. Curtain, that sounds good. I'll do that. The curtain was depicting the Lord Jesus Christ all the time. In the Old Testament, if, if truly this was, the, if I can put it this way, the, the, the way to death, you walk in, you die. And God is like this God on Mount Sinai, terrifying and earthquakes and lightnings and thunders. You would think that the, you know, that the curtain would be black and woven with thorns and kind of a terrifying, you know, red and, and don't come in this way, danger, danger. That's not what the curtain looked like, was it? The curtain was blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen and made of cunning work. That means it wasn't just slapped together. It was, it was intricate. It was a beautiful piece of tapestry. And each of those things, as with everything in the tabernacle, is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. The blue is a picture of his divinity. The purple is a picture of his royalty. The scarlet is a picture of his blood and his sacrifice and fine twined linen which grows out of the ground, linen and flax, consistently a picture of his, his humanity, his spotless, white, perfect humanity. And it was made of cunning work. This was no simple workmanship. This was no simple curtain. This was a beautiful piece of work. The curtain was a picture of Jesus Christ even back then. The curtain is a picture of Jesus Christ when it is rent in twain. If the curtain is a picture of Jesus Christ, what happened when he died? He was rent. Um, my understanding is that this curtain was very thick. It wasn't gauzy, and it wasn't like the sweater that Brother Schaefer has on. And some, some places you'll read say it was as much as three or four or six inches thick. I mean, that sounds crazy. Um, it was very likely at least one or two inches thick. Now, you try ripping something that is an inch thick. You know you're not going to do it. Have you ever tried that? I mean, if, if, if it's a T-shirt that's been worn for five years and I finally turned it into a rag and I need to rip it into a rag, I might be able to rip it, maybe. But you put six, seven, eight, ten layers of intricately woven, you know, cloth, you're not going to rip it. You're not going to rip it with your hands. We are helping my cousin Andrew, cousin, my brother, so many cousins here. Oh. <laughs> Maybe you won't listen to this later. 
helping him at his house, and they're using this wool insulation. It just looks like fiberglass, but it's not. It's amazing. You keep putting your hands on it, rub it on your face, and you don't get itchy. It's just this wonderful wool insulation. But you don't rip that stuff with your hands. In fact, you need some big, heavy-duty scissors, shears, and even then it's very difficult to rip through it. The point is, it took a tremendous amount of natural force to rip the curtain. The amount of force that was exerted on that curtain in order to rip it. And the Lord Jesus Christ experienced that same kind of force applied to Him, ripping Him, so that in so doing, the way would be made open. But He wasn't ripped and the way opened and then it set aside. He was raised again. In his flesh, in his body, to come be, stand in the entrance and be the new and living way. So, instead of reading that the veil was written in twain from top to bottom and now the way is open, glory be. We're so accustomed to the glorious Abba, Father of grace. that, that and, and rightly so. I'm glad you are. I'm glad that you are immersed in, come boldly. You're immersed in the fact that I can run into the throne room. But remember, this is the most holy place where the holy God still resides. He has not changed. And so instead of picturing yourself walking up to this gaping hole and seeing the holy God in there and hoping that when I walk in, things are going to be okay just because the door's now open. Instead, what's really happening is you're walking up to the opening and Jesus Christ, the living son of God, is stepping out from the side and you walk in with him. He is the new and living way every single time. Again, not just the first time, not just in some spiritual eternal concept. Today, if you want to approach the most holy God, you're going to walk in with the living way, the Son of God. Now, I want to back up just very briefly and, and double underline this from this same chapter. In... Uh, let me just catch a phrase from the first of chapter 9. Uh, then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, that is the holy place. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. That's the one we're talking about, which had the golden censer, the ark of the covenant, etc. Verse uh, Verse 5, over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy of which we cannot uh, speak particularly. Um, When these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle. That's what we were talking about. They always went back and forth into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people, the Holy Ghost this signifying. What did the Holy Ghost mean by this? That there was glory to come? Sort of. But by this, the Holy Ghost was signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. The whole point of this was the Holy Ghost saying, the way is not manifest. There's a real way. There's a true way. And it's coming, but it is not yet manifest. This is just a picture of that way. The way was manifest in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way. And the Holy Ghost says, Here he is. The way is now open. That doesn't mean the door is open. It means what the door is there. I am the door. 
I am the way. He is those things. Now, in Hebrews 10, and this is where, how do you, how do you start? Um, let's just go to verse 3. I just want to read a bit of this, and then we're going to close. In those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. That was part of God's point, every year, to remind us, to remind them. Sins, your sins, still have to be dealt with. This isn't going to do it. Next year, this isn't going to do it. Next year, this still hasn't done it. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body, flesh, body. Listen to how often Hebrews in particular says this to us. Remember Jesus says, A spirit hath not flesh and a bone as ye see me have. And then he eats in front of them and drinks in front of them and says, touch me, feel me. I'm real. I'm a man. I'm the son of God, but I'm also flesh and bone. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure. Then said I, this is, you you like epic? This is epic. All all the movies that have these, these lines and these moments where they say, they are coming or we are coming, or I am coming. And it's this big dramatic moment, right? And you get chills down your spine, maybe, if it's, if it's any kind of decent movie. Those are all just really sad little ripples and echoes of this one. This one. You know, Jesus, Jesus has that line. He's the first one with that line. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, <laughs> three of my favorite words in the Bible, lo, I Come. Lo, I am coming. Emmanuel, God with us. In the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. And what was the will of the Father? You go down there and destroy them all. They are not worthy to live. That's the truth. The will of the Father was that he would not lose one that was given to him. That he would not lose one. That those that he loved, he would love to the end. And he came to do that will. And then again, he says, above when he said sacrifice and offering, get into this, but in verse 10, he says again, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Even right now, I don't know, there, there are things, I guess, maybe that every, maybe every preacher says frequently, things that we just latch on to and love. And, and so I may have said this here before, and I probably have. But one of, my, one of the most comforting truths to me, realities to think about to me, is the fact that Jesus Christ, this person that we talk about, still in, is still in a body. He is somewhere taking up space, made of carbon like you. It's glorified, and he's not just man, he's also God, but he is man. He has a body. And it was by that body that the way was opened, and because he is risen and he's alive again, it's by that body that the way is open, because his body is the way, his flesh is. 